Hey, I'm Jamie Glowacki, and you are listening to Oh Crap, I Love My Toddler, But Holy Fuck. This is a podcast for conscious parents who drop the F-bomb a lot. Hey, welcome, welcome. So for today's episode, this is a follow-up to keeping kids safe and talking about abuse, sexual abuse, and perpetrators. So as you know, that original episode, it was pretty hard. It was pretty hard for me to sketch out because these are the things we really need to talk about. And yet these are the things that make us super anxious. Yeah. The feedback to that episode was overwhelming. The feedback to the the harder stuff was very overwhelming. I think I did three, right? I did how to talk about the hard stuff, you know, try to keep our kids safe, and then also dealing with mental health, self-care, and anxiety, and that kind of thing. And so all three of those were, they were challenging because I don't want to feed anybody's anxiety, but this is the stuff we need to talk about, right? And the feedback was so overwhelming for me. I heard from so many people who wanted to share their personal stories with me. And I literally, I got on the phone with a lot of people who had emailed me because it's so amazing. You know, that's part of my history and my trauma. And it's so great to talk to people who have healed and want to talk more and give more information. And that's what this was really about. There was this thread of talking with moms. It was all moms that they wanted me to flesh out. And there were some commonalities we discussed. There were some things that I forgot. I I did the episode in sort of broad strokes. And so I didn't break down a lot of the information. And what really came up is that so many people, yeah, we can let our anxiety run away with like human trafficking or kidnapping, even though we do know statistically those are rare and that that's, it's just sort of like our minds go crazy, but we're not really anxious about that. But the number one thing is that what people asked me for was a follow-up because the reality is 95% of children who are sexually abused will be abused by someone they know and trust. Yeah. And the general feedback I got was people wanted to know how to talk about this with their kids and other precautions you can take. Of course, knowledge, preparation, doing what we can is really our job as parents, right? We have to name the boogeyman. We have to look the boogeyman dead in the eye to disarm him. We have to call out the darkness because I know one thing is for certain, so many kids in previous generations got into deep trouble with abuse because parents were clueless, right? Now, before we go into anything, I think the very first thing that became a thread for us as we discuss this is if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, you must get help if you haven't already. Healing is possible and A thread in me personally talking to these other parents in the last couple of weeks is that when you can tell your story to anyone without shame or crying, that's a really good indication that you've healed. Sexual abuse is often a cycle and it's up to you to break that cycle. And it's not necessarily that because you are a survivor of sexual abuse that you will be a perpetrator, but that you may get stuck in a victim loop and miss signals with your own child. The other thing is you could do the opposite, be so intense and crazy trying to avoid all abuse that you are stymieing your child's growth and becoming too anxious and too overbearing in your parenting. So that is like the number one First and foremost, this episode is really going to be about more things we can do as parents, because at the age your child is at, 
you can't give too much information, right? And in the last episode I did a few episodes ago, I gave you guys the example of Pascal in a sort of sketchy situation. Pascal was older and I felt the need to be sort of brutal with the amount of information I gave him because knowing him, I know he could handle it. And I also could see that my glossing over the subject was not hitting him with its importance. So it became more vital for me to give him more information. When your kids are three, four, five, six, seven years old, we don't want to give them all that that detail, right? We don't want to give them all the information. So the best thing I think is we just stick with the party line of this is your body. This is your body. You are in charge of it. You get to tell people if they can touch you or not. And I think there's just so many ways of keeping that simple to your child and letting them do that. Again, we go back to body autonomy. Whenever you can, whenever you find yourself engaged in a power struggle about your child and their body, where can you allow them to dissent? Allow them to dissent you. That will give them courage to advocate for themselves with other people. But I think it's just really easy to tell your child over and over again, it's your body. Nobody should touch you. No, nobody, not even people you know and love. You know, mommy, mommy touches you because I, I've been t- taking care of you since you were a baby. But if you don't want me to, I don't have to. You, we can use that sort of language. Beyond that, though, I'm not sure there's much else you can do with your child without disclosing a lot. And I think with every year they get smarter and more mature and more able to handle information. Next up is boundaries. Um, I talked to a couple of moms who they were just really interesting about boundaries. And you know, I'm a stickler for boundaries. I had said in that last episode that one of the things I think is really key is that we model for our kids. Yeah. We model for our kids when we have a gut feeling. We model for our kids when we feel somebody creepy is like in our space. But this is where boundaries can get kind of wonky. And this is with family, right? If grandpa, if you know your father-in-law or even your dad is creepy, if you know that you have a creepy uncle, yeah, it's totally okay for you to piss off a whole bunch of family members and not let your child be alone with that person. And this is, this is really hard because I feel like we all have a creepy uncle. Yeah. And I was talking to this one mom who said, you know, we, we regularly throw our kids under the bus to keep the peace with family. And that really um, resonated with me. And so make sure you're checking in with yourself. Yeah. And creepy, creepy doesn't just have to be creepy. Creepy can be that like for me, there's just too much drinking going on. Yeah. That um, maybe somebody's just really not necessarily creepy, but they, I don't know, there's just something off about them. Yeah. The last episode I talked that, especially as women, we tend to not be vocal, noisy enough when people are in our personal space, if they're too touchy or just too anything. But we do this so often with family. Yeah. We leave our kids when we have doubts. I, I know it's, it's happened to me when I'm working with clients. They're like, oh, but it's my only childcare. And I don't, you know, I hate how I, my parents, I don't like how my parents are with my kid, but it's my only childcare. I know that. For others, it's about keeping the peace within the larger family. And all the parents I spoke with in the last couple of weeks about sexual abuse brought up this point. You have to be willing to step outside that. You have to be willing to get some sort of other child care. You have to be willing to piss people off, 
rather than jeopardize or compromise your child. The funny thing is, this sounds like a no-brainer. It really does. It sounds like, well, of course, you know, and if you don't have creepers in your family, you may be like, well, who on earth would leave their kid with somebody they have doubts about? But I think this is a territory that nobody talks about, that there it could be right there, right in front of you. You know it. Or you know that if you leave your kids at your parents' house, that your creepy brother might be in and out of the house, right? There are all these like situations that come up. And I think, again, if, if, if this isn't your family, this can sound like it's movie material and you're like, I would never do that to my kid. But it does and can happen. And so that's why I really want to bring this out into the light. This one mama wrote me, we talked on the phone and then she actually sent a follow-up email about boundaries. And I thought this was so freaking brilliant. And I've said this before, but I think I don't say it enough. She said, she wrote this. She said, another thing I totally forgot about is when parents start to make boundaries with other people, right? With family members, often they'll get pushback, especially if they're changing the way things have been previously done. When you create boundaries... You will know how the healthy and unhealthy people are in your life based on who respects those boundaries and who fights you on them. Healthy people respect boundaries. Unhealthy people push back on them, thereby reinforcing you made the right choice to establish boundaries with those people. But that pushback, which is often a a manipulation, is what keep parents from forming healthy boundaries to begin with. They have a hard time saying no, especially when someone criticizes them for their decision or makes them feel guilty about that. This is so important, you guys. And this goes into even just the toxic people in your life, right? It doesn't have to be creepy people. It's toxic people. So at any point... In your life, you have the right to change your mind about a person. So maybe when your child was an infant, they stayed with grandma and grandpa. All of a sudden, they're creepy uncle. It could be, I'm just using a a scenario that has come up before. This isn't anybody's particular scenario, but maybe it's your brother who's had a hard time. Maybe your brother's dabbled in drugs and, and drinking too much. And maybe your brother's got a record. I don't know, something like that, right? And I am going to use male because it is 97% of the time sexual abuse is from a male. It does happen with females, but it's 3% of the time. So largely we are talking about males. So anyway, you're, you know, you, you've been leaving your child who's an infant with your parents and all of a sudden your wayward brother comes back into town and you know he's going to be in and out of the house. It's okay for you to say, I'm not letting my kids stay at your house anymore. And if you get pushback, that's unhealthy. That's an unhealthy family dynamic. And I know from my own family dynamic, I've worked enough with parents, with families to know that boy, do people rally around the wayward person, right? With a person who's having a hard time, especially parents, your parents tend to, oh, but he just had a hard time. You know, they almost try to force this person into your life and that can really happen. So it it's totally okay if you change your mind and you can base their reaction about the boundary. That can be the foundation, right? I was working with this one family and the mom is, it looks like like almost mental illness, not almost for sure, mental illness. And the mom and dad are sort of stuck because she's their childcare. And I was like, you gotta, you gotta figure out another way for childcare. They're leaving your child knowing that this person has a mental illness is, is very, very sketchy. And 
in this particular case, the mom was lovely with the children. You know, like she was, um, she was like a really good grandma, but the potential is there. If you know there's a mental illness, the potential is there for her to not be a great grandma, for her, for the child to be in sketchy territory with her. Right. So again, I know this can seem, if you're not in it, this can seem like a no brainer, but I really don't think it is. With boundaries, a huge issue came up, which was sleepovers. You have every right to completely nix sleepovers. And when I say sleepovers, I'm generally talking about, well, you, you can choose. You can choose any, any kind of sleepover is, is, not good for your child, not good for your family. I think when they turn into slumber parties, when there's a few kids, that's when things get really crazy. Um, one child can get lost in the shuffle, be pulled aside by an older sibling. All kinds of shadiness can happen. I also think I was talking to this mom, Lacey, and she said, nothing good ever came of sleepovers, like nothing good. And I look back and any multiple kid slumber party type sleepovers, yeah, nothing ever good. They were a hotbed for pranks, mean-spirited pranks, mean girls, just, you know, a small hierarchy had to happen. The mean girls came out. Somebody was at the bottom. I don't know. I I look back and I go, yeah, nothing really good ever happened. With my own parenting, I do one-on-ones and we've had good luck with that. One kid, I know the parents, I know the situation. Pascal has a phone. He can call me. There, there are these kinds of things. And it's always families that I really know and nobody is in or out. I know that my friend, one of my friends had a situation where uh, her daughter had a slumber party and her daughter is very, um, very sweet, sweet, sweet girl and very modest for in this day and age. And she called her mom midway and she said, you got to come pick me up. There's like teenage boys coming in and out. And the older brother was also having friends over and there were just these teenage boys roaming the house. And this young woman got very nervous about that. So the mom went and picked her up. And and what she did is she said, you know what? No more sleepovers. I'm just not dealing with this. Nobody can sleep anywhere. And that's just the rule. It's okay not to have sleepovers. And this, I think, is you will get kickback from people. People think that sleepovers are a quintessential part of childhood, and they don't have to be. They really don't. And I do think that the media, <laughs> I sit with Pascal a lot, and I'm like, oh, my God, they make sleepovers seem like they're just like a crux of childhood. You know, if you watch any programs targeted for tweens, and it's it's a lot like I tell Pascal when you see a prom in the movies, like, I don't know, prom is never like how they do it in the movies. And so I was like, just so you know, like, that's not how prom goes down. Just like sleepovers, that's not how they go down. It's okay if you know that adults are going to be drinking. If it's a party atmosphere, you can say no. So I'm just giving you a whole lot of permission to shore up your boundaries. It's it's totally okay for you to be that that strict mom or that mean mom, whatever people want to call you, if you know that the situation isn't going to be ideal or you just you could just make it a blanket. No, our family doesn't do sleepovers. Again, I'm personally okay with them, but I am really vocal. Like all my friends know, like, I don't care if you drink, but if you're going to be drinking around my kid, 
We just don't have to be around that night. I hate drinking. I think it muddles everything. I think it skews judgment. I just don't want my kid around it. And so even my friends know that. And again, going back to healthy boundaries, they're okay. And they'll be like, hey, Jane, we're kind of having a party. There is going to be drinking. So maybe you don't want Pascal to sleep over. And I'm like, yeah, man, thanks. I don't want him to sleep over, but thanks for letting me know. Same thing. Um, another, you know, this is not exactly about abuse, but this has come up because my son took up hunting and he does, um, he does have a shotgun now. He, he wants to hunt and he has been hunting. He gets us food. It's kind of cool and wonderful, but I now have a gun in the house. So I let people know the minute their kids are going to spend any amount of time, I tell the parents at the door, I say, come on in. I want to show you. We do have a gun. This is where the ammo is kept. This is how it's locked up. This is where it's stored so that they can feel comfortable. Now it's really funny because my son wanted to do a birthday sleepover with one of his friends. And what the teenage boy thing now they do is they actually bring televisions and monitors. They play their video games together, these multiplayers in the same room. So it looks like a it looks like a research lab or NASA or something. Cause like when you take a picture, all these kids are in the same room with their like own TV monitors. <laughs> and I didn't know this boy. I know him online. I've talked to him online. Um, I've actually called this kid to help me with some like tech setup, but I had only met his parents once and I was a little unsure. So I called another friend whose child goes to school with this kid. And I was like, Hey, can you, um, can I get a reference for these parents? And she was like, yeah, you know, I think they're great. There's this, that, and the other thing. She said, but I don't know. She said, you're really good at asking the hard questions. She said, I think they hunt and I think they might have guns. And I don't know what the deal is with that. I was flabbergasted by this mom. I was like, I might be good at asking the hard questions, but I don't think that's like a thing that you get to be good or bad about. Like you are you afraid you're going to offend somebody by asking about guns? And I was always really strict about this. Like more gun accidents happen. I mean, gun deaths happen with kids and toddlers because they find a gun and don't know how to handle it and and shoot themselves or somebody else. So for me, right away, like as, I don't know, as soon as Pascal started going to people's houses, I was like, do you have guns? Just ask. You can just ask, do you have guns? What's happening, you know, while my child's at your house? Is there going to be drinking? Is It's okay to ask those things. And if somebody gets offended, walk away. They're not your people. I think it was just so shocking to me that this mom had concerns about guns being in this family's house and yet wasn't willing to ask. And I said, okay. So I walked, you know, I talked to the mom on the phone. And I when I dropped Pascal off, I said, hey, you know, we're hunters too. I hear that you guys have guns. Can you show me where they're stored? And she was like, yeah, totally. Anybody who has guns is going to be all about gun safety and let you know exactly where their guns are. So I know that's not about abuse, but it's another segue about how to keep our kids safe. Ask that question. You don't know who has guns, who uses a pistol for house protection, who's a hunter. One of the things I learned about hunting and it's a respect thing of non-hunters because people have strong feelings about it, is that you don't go around bragging. So it was really funny when I, Pascal got into hunting, all of a sudden, like, it was like this secret code word. So many people I know actually hunt and they just don't, you know, brag about it. They don't let you know about it. And so I think it's really important that you ask those questions if your child's spending any time at somebody's house. It's a no-brainer. Like, hey, I'm just curious, do you guys have any guns? And the person could say, no, my God, we don't shoot guns at all. Or they could be like, yes, would you like to see them? Again, it goes back to that boundary thing. If somebody reacts poorly, right, then they're the unhealthy ones. If your child's going to be spending an evening with somebody and you say, hey, I'm not cool with drinking, is anybody going to be drinking? And somebody freaks out on you. 
run, run from that scenario because a healthy person would be like, oh, no, no, we're not drinking. You know, sometimes at parties we'll have wine coolers, but no, 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 not tonight. There will be no drinking. A healthy person is going to respect that. An unhealthy person is going to go nuts and the unhealthy person will have unhealthy tendencies. (laughs) So again, that is uh, a couple of parents actually said, why don't you ask around? If you don't believe me about sleepovers, ask around your friends and say, hey, how do you feel about sleepovers? And start to listen to the stories because that will help you determine. Yeah. I think it's really important to remember this point. And it's a really, it's a really horrible point, but people who abuse children cultivate this. Yeah. It's not that the mm, camp counselor decided one day to abuse kids But this person actually went and got a job as a camp counselor, right? They cultivate and they groom. Here's the really important thing. They don't just groom the child. They groom the parents. And so this is where if you are, you know, a two-parent household, educated, you know, you guys have resources and, and understand your child is most likely not a target, right? Because you're going to pick up on signals. You're going to pick up on this kind of stuff, right? And it typically, it's easier to target kids of a single parent who might be strung out, right? And and a person kind of swoops in and offers to take your child. And that note, my uncle, you know, my grandmother, uh, her husband died way back in, in the 1940s. She had four kids. She was by herself. And the priests took my uncle and, you know, offered all this help to my grandmother. My grandmother was a single mom. She needed the help. They were the priests. She, you know, she gave my uncle to the priests. And he was a classic case of the priests abusing him. And, you know, unfortunately, it affected his whole life in a very, very negative way. It's he was a target. He was a target because my grandmother needed the help. Right. So it's important to understand that when. If you are in a position where you do need more help than the average bear, that's what these perpetrators are looking for. So if somebody seems too good to be true, all of a sudden offers out of the blue to take your child, to help you out, and they seem too good to be true, trust your gut on that. And I want to be really cautious here because there's a fine line. We don't want to get like super crazy paranoid, but I, I always say you guys are going to know for me, the hair on my neck goes up. I just get that weird, like mm, there's something just a little off. And then there's other people that just don't trigger that. So really, really trust your God about this. Not everybody who's nice to you is looking to be a perpetrator, but you know, it does happen. So I want to go back to, you know, Lacey had talked to me about creating the boundaries and the healthy boundaries versus the unhealthy boundaries. And also in her follow-up email, and I thought this was just brilliant. She said, the big thing I would say is to encourage parents to ask the very hard question, how much do I trust this person? It's a very difficult question because it forces you to evaluate other people in a way that's really uncomfortable and awkward, but I think it's necessary. And I couldn't agree more with Lacey's statement. Very difficult. How much do I trust this person? And for me, it's not even about, like, I don't use the trust necessarily about potential abuse, but I always think like, shit, what if I died? What if I died tonight? And my kid was kind of like stuck with this person. Would I trust them with my kid? Raising them. And I go, oh, yeah. 
So if I don't, if I'm uncomfortable with how somebody disciplines, if I know somebody strikes their child, I'm not going to leave my child alone with that person. I'm just not. If I'm uncomfortable with how they handle conflict, I'm not going to leave my child with that person, right? So it doesn't always just have to even be trusting them uh, as far as abuse. How much do you trust this person? And so I think we all gravitate towards people with like-minded parenting. But for me, that becomes paramount when it comes to discipline and handling conflict as well as abuse. Yeah. So how much do I trust this person? And you have to be brutal with the answer. Lizzie also brought up that denial is another thing. And I think this is why I'm doing this episode. I think why we really constantly need to be talking about this and shed light on this is because people are in denial that this could ever happen to them. I see it all the time, not in my life. They think that they don't know anyone who would do that, but we know statistics say otherwise. Parents need to be reminded that it can happen to their kids and they can take these measures to prevent it better than if they live with their head under a rock. And I do believe I brought it up in that last episode, but uh, my best friend in high school, her mom was so super strict, not going to happen to my kid, super, super strict. She was not allowed sleepover. She was not allowed. She was under lock and key. It was really ridiculous. And she was the friend who got pregnant in high school. And that was the thing her mom really wanted her to avoid. Her mom had had a young pregnancy as well. And she was the one who got pregnant young. And it can happen. It can happen to your kids. So I think I think we just want to take these measures not to feed our anxiety, not to become paranoid, not to be so hypervigilant we drive ourselves nuts or our kids nuts, but because we need to know. Now, I have to get to the next part, which is also a little bit hard, which is how what behavior should you look for? Because across the board, The people I spoke to who had suffered sexual trauma and sexual abuse said they wished their parents had been more alert to the symptoms and signs because we know this, the faster you can intervene, the faster you can help a child heal should something happen, the more we can talk about it and bring it out into the light and get the appropriate help, the better chances your child has of moving on and healing fully and having a wonderful life despite this happening. So even though I know it's hard to go there to assume that something has happened, let's look for the signs. You want to be aware of what they are so that you can intervene. One of the big things is like, what do you call your your child's genitals. Uh, perpetrators tend to use cutesy nicknames. So if your child comes home all of a sudden with a different name for a body part for their genitals, I would investigate where they pick that up. Of course, they could have gotten it from another child. That is totally, totally, totally possible. So don't go crazy. And a lot of these signs and symptoms, you guys, are in tandem with other signs and symptoms. They're not solo. So I don't want you to jump at any of these symptoms solo and say, my kid has that. Oh my God, something happened. That's not the case, okay? We're looking for overall quite a few of these symptoms and signs happening at the same time. So again, if your child comes home with a totally different name for their genitalia, where did they pick that up? And you can ask that. You can investigate that without going crazy or, you know, where did you learn that without freaking your kid out? Sexually transmitted infections, of course, and these can happen in other instances. So once again, please look for these in tandem with other signs and signals. 
signs of trauma to the genital area, unexplained bleeding, bruising, blood on the sheets, those kinds of things, frequent bladder infections. So if your child's prone to bladder infections, always has been, this is not a sign. I work with potty training kids. Of course, bladder infections do happen. If they're frequent, though, and they're combined with any of these other signs or symptoms, it might be worth investigating. Behavior signs. First and foremost is sexual behavior that's inappropriate for the child's age. I, when I worked with kids and moms in, as a social worker in San Francisco, this was probably the most disturbing thing. And what I can tell you for certain is you are not going to miss this. So if your kid's lounging on the couch and they start touching themselves or masturbating or, you know, their legs are thrown over or it seems regular inappropriate, like please don't touch your penis at the dinner table. That's regular appropriate. Yes. Um, my son, <laughs> I tell this story all the time. I literally had to say these words, please don't let the dog lick your penis. And he said, but it feels good. I know it feels good, but you know, she's kind of gross. It's inappropriate. Let's not do that. You know, I just said it nonplussed in that, in that please don't do it voice so that I didn't you know, hit his radar of like, Ooh, this is something I need to do. Those are all normal and appropriate, right? Like, please don't do that. When a child has been sexually abused, they go like they can go zero to 60 in their sexual behavior and it becomes bizarre. It will be like you have like a 50 year old, you know, crackhead on your hands, like, you know, selling herself for crack. It's, It's really bizarre, but you cannot miss it. So if you if you think your child showing inappropriate sexual behavior, what I can tell you is that you will know you will know if it's because of abuse in this in this instance. It won't be just this within the range of normal. It will go zero to 60 and you can't miss it. Um, bedwetting and soiling the bed only if the child really never did this, never did this. And out of the blue, they start doing that. And, and this, of course, is with an older child, not when you're in potty training age range. If your child all of a sudden doesn't want to be left alone with certain people or is uh, being afraid, to be away from you or primary caregivers. And again, especially if this is new behavior, your kid used to go to, you know, daycare, no problem, love the teachers. There's a new teacher. All of a sudden the kid starts freaking out and won't go. That you need to investigate. If they try to avoid removing clothes to change or bathe, they all of a sudden, again, these are sudden behaviors out of the blue and zero to 60 got weird. They don't want to take... Um, their clothes off. They don't want to take their clothes off in front of you. They're all of a sudden very wonky about their body when, you know, two weeks ago they were running around naked in your house and now they're not. Of course, we always look for suddenly more withdrawn, a strange moodiness out of the blue. And again, this is one that I'm just going to say you can't miss. Like, your child will look depressed. You, it will be uncharacteristic. It will be out of the blue and it won't be just regular shitty behavior. You will know instantly that something's wrong. And so that warrants investigation. Emotional signs to look for. Excessive talk uh, about or knowledge of sexual topics. Like all of a sudden, your child, and, I, and I've seen this, I've seen this in social work, all of a sudden they're giving you the down low on anal sex and you're like, holy shit, where is this coming from? So that's a huge sign, right? That all of a sudden they know things that you didn't teach them. Where did they, they learn this? And of course, you guys, I'm not discounting that that this could also just be another kid in the class, right? They could be learning this from somebody else. 
again, worth investigating, though, because any kid that has this knowledge, perhaps that child is being sexually abused and that's how they're giving your kid the information. I've seen that happen. And it's worth noting that 95% of abuse cases are somebody the child knows and trusts. You guys, that doesn't have to be an older person. That can be a sibling. That can be a friend. That can be a bigger kid. So it's worth noting. Another emotional sign, resuming behaviors that they had grown out of suddenly like thumb sucking, all of a sudden needing, uh, wanting their binky back or wanting a blankie when they had sort of forgotten about it. And again, I can't, re- I can't state this enough. I'm just going to keep reiterating it is that these are in conjunction with other things, right? Like there's plenty of kids who forget about their blankie or their lovey and out of the blue are like, Ooh, I want that back. Can I have that back? But you'll know if it's, out of, you know, need or like, oh, geez, I just, I want that thing back, right? Um, Sudden nightmares or suddenly being afraid of being alone at night and also excessive worry or fearfulness. And again, if you have a kid who out of the womb is a worrier, fearful of everything, that's not who we're talking about. We're talking about the happy-go-lucky kid now who is all of a sudden full of worry. Okay, so that is... I'm going to wrap up for today. That is all the things that I needed to add. Again, most people contacted me with like, how can I talk to my kid about this? Don't be afraid to look for resources online. More and more, there's like body safety courses. There are abuse curriculums. There are a bunch of resources, books, information. I think, again, depending on the child's age, it's not so much about what you can say to your child besides your body's yours, don't allow anybody to touch you, continuing to allow for body autonomy and your child to say no. But I think it is all about these other boundaries that nobody wants to talk about, especially within a family. So I hope that helped. I hope we can continue to have these dialogues and keep continuing to talk about the hard stuff that just we need to keep shedding light on. All right, you guys, as always, rock on. All right, I'm going to sign off for today. You can always go to jamieglowacki.com for the super cool latest updates, including the launch of my new book, yummy new book presale treats, when we release new episodes, and how to work with me directly. And of course, if you need any potty training help, there's a handy link there that will take you to all my potty training resources, including all my courses. That's the Oh Crap Potty Training online course my pooping solutions course, and my night training supplement. And if you need additional help, how to book with a certified OCRAP consultant. That's all at jamieglowacki.com. Have a beautiful day and rock on.